With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by The China Project, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at the Cambridge Judge Business School. And today we are joined by Rory Murphy, who is Vice President of Government Affairs at the U.S.-China Business Council. We're also joined by Paul Triolo, Senior VP for China and Technology Policy Lead at the Albright Stonebridge Group. We discuss the significance and impact of a recently passed semiconductor subsidy bill, the Chips and Science Act of 2022. While the live recording was before Biden's recent executive order on implementing the act, that was in process and Paul and Rory provide some insight on it. We started our discussion with the history of the CHIPS Act, including why and how it took so long to pass, and an overview of the legislation specifically on how more than $200 billion funding is going to be deployed. Rory gave a detailed set of comments on the political dynamics of the act and how the midterm elections in the U.S. will impact different sectors. Paul then looked at the big picture and discussed some other regulations that function hand-in-hand with the CHIPS Act, such as the export and investment controls around manufacturing equipment and chips used for AI. We moved on to discuss the political impact on U.S.-China relations, and Rory pointed out that the CHIPS Act is one of the many bills passed that form the Biden administration's China strategy. We also discussed China's response to the CHIPS Act its industrial policy, and the recent corruption scandal of the National Integrated Circuit Industry Investment Fund. That's a, that's a you know, mouthful, also known as the big fund. Chip powerhouse Taiwan also featured in the discussion with Rory commenting from a political standpoint and Paul more about the market dynamics. Rory mentioned the increasing tension between the U.S. and China on Taiwan, given Nancy Pelosi's recent visit and also the Taiwan Policy Act. Paul commented more specifically on TSMC's importance in and dependence on the global supply chain. And he pointed out Taiwan's dilemma of choosing between the blue line led by the West and the red line led by China. 
Questions from the audience in this live event further probed China's capabilities to innovate with limited access to cutting-edge chip technologies and personnel. And Paul gave a realistic picture of how China is facing a stiff upward battle in the semiconductor industry. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Chris Markowitz, a professor at the Cambridge Judge Business School, and want to welcome you to this live The China Project CEO webinar recording of the China Corner Office podcast, which is a show focused on leaders and companies facing the challenges and opportunities of doing business in China. Today's webinar is in partnership with the U.S.-China Business Council, the USCBC, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization that represents over 250 American companies doing business with China. And our topic today is the CHIPS Act, semiconductor policy more generally, and what it means for U.S.-China semiconductor competition. Joining us are two leaders who are very intimately familiar with the topic including Rory Murphy, who is Vice President of Government Affairs at the USCBC, and Paul Troiolo, who's Senior VP for China and Tech Policy Lead for the Albright Stonebridge Group. Rory and Paul, welcome to China Corner Office. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. First, uh, I want to start with Paul. You're a prolific author on this topic and speaker. Just saw, saw something drop from you today or yesterday. We'll put some of the links in the chat. Maybe just give us a little bit of background. You've written a lot about the semiconductor policy globally and in China. Brief review of the CHIPS Act. What does it focus on? And what factors actually drive those different foci of the act? The CHIPS Act. So it took a long time to get passed, almost two years. And it's called the Chips and Science Act for a reason, as we'll talk about. And I think it was really designed to do several things, one broad and one more narrow. So first, the CHIPS Act is intended to jumpstart the U.S. onshore industry to support advanced semiconductor manufacturing. Now, most developed countries, Germany, Israel, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, all provide some level of subsidies to support advanced semiconductor manufacturing. So the U.S. at some level is joining the game that other countries are already playing. So to this end, it provides around 30 billion roughly for advanced manufacturing and around 10 billion for legacy semiconductors. Those are the kind of chips that remain in short supply during the global chip shortage, things like controllers for switches in your car, for example. And originally the bill was probably gonna be focused solely on advanced semiconductors, but because of the sh chip shortage and pressure from the auto industry and the medical device manufacturers, the funding will also go to some of this legacy equipment. In addition, some of that 30 billion that I mentioned will also go to other parts of the semiconductor supply chain, particularly upstream. That, that means things like silicon wafers on which the chips are etched and processed gases and chemicals needed for the manufacturing process. Critically too, and we'll get to this a little later, there'll be around 200 million for workforce development as part of longer term planning around the act. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, for example, a big proponent, has called for a holistic view of this whole effort, looking at all elements of the supply chain and bringing things back to the US. So it's not just about manufacturing, in other words, it's about the whole ecosystem. And finally, there's some R&D money in there, which will help catalyze an advanced R&D center in the US, likely in New York. Senator Schumer is a big backer of the bill. And that will focus on things like advanced packaging, which is a key downstream sector of the industry. And then second, which we will probably want to talk a little more about, is the Taiwan question. So the act, at another level, is really designed to bring some 
level of advanced manufacturing to the U.S. as a national security priority. Secretary Raimondo, again, has been very clear on this. With 90 or so percent of advanced semis made by one company, U.S. national security officials are increasingly concerned about the potential for there to be issues with Taiwan as a U.S.-China relations deteriorate and as China becomes more active in moving towards some type of unification with Taiwan, which is a huge topic, of course. The Pelosi visit and its aftermath, of course, contributed to the current state, and we're in a so-called fourth Taiwan crisis. But U.S. officials have been keen to reduce dependence on Taiwan for things like chips used in advanced fighter jets. The Taiwan question is certainly a really interesting aspect of this, and we'll get to that in a bit. Just the mechanics of some of this would be good to hear a little bit about. So you mentioned this $30 billion, $10 billion. How does that money get deployed? The companies say, okay, I want to site a plant in XYZ location, and then they can get grants from the government. I mean, how does the money flow actually getting semiconductor manufacturing onshore in the U.S.? Quickly, so part of the CHIPS Act has set up a, what's called a CHIPS program office at NIST under the Commerce Department. And starting in likely February of 2023, companies will be submitting bids for funding under the CHIPS Act. And so likely the first three or four tranches of grants, it'll include both grants and tax incentives, will go to large manufacturers like TSMC, which is already building a facility in Arizona, Intel, which is already starting to build major facilities in Ohio, and Samsung, which is already committed to building new facilities in Texas. And then there'll probably be some grants to companies like Micron, which announced a big deal just this week for a memory facility in New York. So part of the game is that Secretary Armando focuses on is that the goal here is to use that money to catalyze private sector investment here. So those monies will help to offset some of the costs of building in the U.S., which are higher. But this program office at Commerce have to adjudicate all of these requests coming in. And so after those first four major manufacturers, it'll get tougher because there's many, many pieces of the supply chain, as I mentioned, and they'll have to decide how to prioritize those grants The tax incentives are pretty much across the board, so companies don't need to apply for those. Those will be granted if you're building a facility in the US or expanding a facility, you'll get those tax breaks. But the real grants and giveaways, if you will, the subsidies are going to be very, very competitive. The Commerce Department is gearing up as we speak to figure out how to adjudicate those requests. I want to actually turn to you, Rory, you know, your roles in leading government affairs for the US CBC. And it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about the sort of political dynamics behind this. Paul mentioned in his comments, companies from Germany to Israel to um, South Korea to Taiwan all have some sort of policy and support of this industry. But the U.S. is not sort of a little late to the game. Also, this act took a long time to actually make it through Congress. And so can you give us a little bit of background about why that is that it took so long with some of the areas that maybe fell out of the act, you were under debate, and then why the U.S. is so unique in not having this type of legislation previously. Paul went into how complicated implementation of this bill is going to be and how messy that could be. Well, it is super messy to get to the bill being signed into law. I think there's a good reason for that. You know, this is one of the largest industrial development programs in U.S. history. It's a big deal. I can't emphasize enough how excited the White House is about this being signed into law. For it to go in Congress, it took two years. It was a super long and messy process. But that's how Congress is designed. It should be messy. Something this big should take some time. You know, there was dozen markups on different pieces of this thing, hundreds and probably thousands of amendments filed throughout this process. I feel like every single member of Congress had some input into this bill. There's a big House bill 
a big Senate bill. They combined it into the CHIPS bill. Thousands of pages were left on the cutting room floor. But it took forever because there's just a lot of ideas that were required to get to this finished product. Now, what the finished product is, is really focused on kind of industrial policy. And Chris, as you mentioned, it's kind of a change of tune for the United States. And there's several reasons for that. There's a real desire among Democrats and Republicans to rebuild the U.S. industrial base. There's real national security concerns about the U.S. falling behind other countries in the race for some of these key technologies. And I think there was a need to channel some of these tough on China concepts into real action. And so a combination of all those three got us to where we are. If you look at kind of big legislation that's passed over the past 15 years, you have the ACA that was Democrats only. After it passed, it was wildly unpopular. The big tax form bill that passed under President Trump, one party passed it, wildly unpopular after the fact. The CHIPS Act is bipartisan. It's big and it's quite popular and has a high approval rating. So my sense is when Congress does something right and it's popular, they tend to go back to the well. I think there's a real logic behind the bill that that could be applied to other industries. So in terms of industrial policy, this could just be step one for where the U.S. is going. Do you have any projections about where to go next? How about if Republicans were to take both houses of Congress in 2022? Would things be different then versus this bipartisan spirit that you're talking about? If Republicans take one or both chambers, I think you could see change in tone. I think there will be political incentive for, say, Republicans take the House, for House Republicans to try to position themselves as tougher party on China. But it's important to know, we've talked about this before, Chris, that the politics of being tough on China are just undeniable. 82% of American voters have an unfavorable view of China, and that's not going to change anytime soon. So I don't think from a policy perspective, there's a heck of a lot of difference between if Democrats win, Republicans win. You may see an acceleration on some things. You might see a change of tone. You might see some more provocative measures getting votes that otherwise wouldn't. But I do think that next Congress, regardless of who's in control, we're going to see some continuation of these industrial policy type actions. That includes on outbound investment. Um, We can go into this more detail later. There's a big desire. You know, Congress just gave out billions of dollars they want to make sure that that money is staying in the United States. The CHIPS bill had certain guardrails that prevents you if you're taking the money from investing in China. There's a bipartisan desire among a lot of members to do something even broader. So even if you're not taking federal funds, there's a lot of members, a lot of policymakers that don't want American investment going into countries like China, into sectors of concern. So we can get into that in the questions perhaps because there's a lot there, but that's kind of where I see things. Paul, I want to go back to you. Rory mentioned that there was across the aisle support for these type of programs, not just in Congress, but also President Biden, the executive branch also is active in trying to formulate a variety of different actions and responses as well. I know that you have some stuff that you've written on that recently. Can you say a little bit about some of the new proposed rules around chips that may create some big issues for some U.S. companies and what's involved with them and what impact they might have? There's a couple of different buckets of things that have been out there on the table for some time. So you have this industrial policy and the Chips Act side of things, of course. Then there's the flip side of that, which is the export controls and restrictions on technologies going to China, for example, in this space. Now, this is not new, right? I mean, we've seen the U.S. weaponize semiconductor industry before in cases like Huawei, but I think we're moving into a new 
a really new, where there's going to be new restrictions. The Biden administration is going to sort of plug gap in areas that started in the Trump era and concern over technologies going to China. So what we're probably going to have tomorrow morning is a fairly major announcement around semiconductor manufacturing equipment restrictions going to China. Now, again, this is not totally new. U.S. government, for example, already controls the export of advanced lithography to China through the multilateral agreement called the Wassenauer Agreement. That's the equipment you need to make the most advanced semiconductors. But this will be a broader set of restrictions, roughly targeting production nodes around 14 nanometers. This is uh, the way the industry thinks about the semiconductor manufacturing in terms of these nodes. And 14 nanometers is pretty advanced, but it's not the most advanced. But the, there's a concern in the U.S. government that China is making progress and building lots of foundries in China that are using U.S. technology. And there's concern about, of course, the, the potential for diversion for military end use, etc. Right. And so this, these new controls will give the U.S. government more granular control over what types of equipment go to which types of end users in China. And that will come tomorrow morning. That's known to most industry watchers because the Commerce Department sent out letters to some of the U.S. manufacturers earlier right. this year. So 14 nanometer chips, what are they used in phones, in cars, in Internet of Things devices? What is the application for those type of chips? They're widely used. Your phone, your car, data centers are all using chips yeah. roughly that level. Your phone is also using more advanced chips at, the, at 7 okay. and 5 and 3 nanometers. But 14 wow, nanometers okay. is pretty good, solid technology and is used in a variety of applications. The somewhat new wrinkle here is going to be controls around chips used for artificial intelligence and things like uh -huh. high-performance computing. So last month, actually it was August, U.S. leaders in this space like NVIDIA, which makes graphical processing right. units, so-called GPUs, and AMD both received letters from the Commerce Department warning that basically there would be some restrictions coming up on certain kinds of these chips at, at, at a very advanced okay. stage. There'll be a new rule that outlines controls on those. People are talking about a potentially a total ban on the shipment of certain types of GPUs to China, for example. Now, those are used very widely for AI workloads in data uh -huh. centers, et cetera. What's going on here? What are the concerns? And how the U.S. government is going to respond to this? So that's another bucket of issues. New right. controls around AI and HPC, high-performance computing-related chips. And then finally, there'll be some addition of Chinese companies to some of the many lists that the U.S. government maintains that have differing levels of implications. For example, the entity list, which is the main list that the Commerce Department uses to control, yeah. require licensing around U.S. technology exports to China. Right. There'll be some additions to that entity list. There'll probably also be some companies hit with the entity list plus the so-called foreign direct product rule, which was used against Huawei and basically precluded Huawei from using Taiwan and TSMC and other non-Chinese foundries to manufacture chips. So Taiwan is gonna get dragged into this, again, Taiwan companies, because of it's really an extraterritorial application of US export control laws. So all those things are gonna likely happen within the coming weeks, in addition to the outbound investment review, which Rory mentioned earlier, which we can talk about. So it represents a pretty big effort that the Beijing will view, of course, as trying to contain China's rise as a technology power. It's gonna be a major thing, and US companies, of course, are gonna be affected, whether it's Nvidia, or AMD or the tool makers. U.S. companies, for example, dominate those tool making sectors, companies like Applied Materials, like LAM Research, and all the EDA tools, the software tools right. used to design chips. So it's a big issue for U.S. companies. Thank you, folks, for entering some questions in the Q&A. One of them, I think, relates as a nice follow-up to this one. So I'll be back to you in a second, Rory. Apologies. So the question here is, if the U.S. keeps controlling exports, wouldn't it force China to just make those tools and chips themselves, and then 
we just have a more hostile competitor. I'm curious to hear what your response is to that. I mean, aren't we just basically forcing China to up its game and then be able to do it all themselves and we won't have any leverage at all? At one level, that's the game we're entering into here. Now, it's tricky because left to its own devices, Chinese companies, for example, without some of these restrictions, would tend to use the best technology out there. If they don't have its own software to design semiconductors, then they wouldn't go there. But now, because of these restrictions, the sense is that the U.S. is going to continue to weaponize these supply chains. So yes, China is moving quickly to try to develop alternatives. Now, it's really, though, not a question of catching up. It's really adapting to the new realities. So already, for example, Huawei, which was hit with some of these restrictions, is trying to fund its own semiconductor manufacturing effort in China. And then Huawei is also adapting by trying to design systems that don't use those cutting edge chips, but use a sort of system approach and software to try to achieve the same types of capabilities. So China has already been adapting, but these latest measures, they'll push China even further down that road. China has already has heavy subsidies, even much bigger than the CHIPS Act, which we can talk about, and also many preferential policies for semiconductor companies. The bottom line, though, is this is not something, an issue that you can simply throw money at. You need really good people, experienced engineers. You need time to master the technology and all the processes required. And there are many, many pieces of that supply chain that I talked about earlier that are really tough to break into, right? You can't just throw money at it and expect to make breakthroughs because most of those companies that are dominating in their areas, the companies I mentioned, taken them several decades to develop the engineering talent and the technology and the innovation capabilities to stay leaders in those areas. China faces a stiff upward battle to try to, if it's going to really try to recreate most or all of these supply chains within China without access to what's going on globally. The other bottom line is this is a global industry with global division of labor and lots of innovation happening all around the world that you need to be aware of and keep track of. So China faces a tall order. A a number of years ago, probably seven or eight years ago, I actually lived for about five months on the campus of SMIC and got to know a variety of the leaders there. And what you're saying really resonates with what they were telling me. I visited a number of their fabs there in Shanghai that they have. And it looks like the most sort of state of the art thing. But when you see, you know, there's like, oh, this machine is 60 million, but actually what we would better to be have some other machine that would allow us to do various more advanced things. So the complexity is hard to realize and all these intersecting pieces from human capital, engineering and machine tools all play together. Rory, building on this thought about competition between the U.S. and China, Paul was just commenting specifically on topics of semiconductors and What's your sense about what this act means more generally for the state of U.S.-China relations? Is this a new, more intense industrial competition period we're moving into? How do you see China responding? The Chinese have been critical of the CHIPS Act, criticized it for disrupting international trade and distorting global supply chains. And so it's uh, interesting to hear that messaging coming out of Beijing. But look, there's a lot of things on the list that are impacting the U.S.-China relationship. The thousand different items Paul just ran through, those are significant. There's 800 bills that were introduced in Congress this year related to China. We, the United States, passed the UFLPA, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, last year. There's a Taiwan Policy Act moving through Congress right now. There's six or seven delegations of members of Congress and governors who have been to Taiwan since Speaker Pelosi went in early August. So there's a lot of stuff on the list impacting the relationship. This is one of those things, but I don't think it necessarily moves the needle in terms of kind of how bad things are in the bilateral relationship. The Biden team has been pretty clear that they're 
We don't have a lot of details on their China strategy, but how they're viewing this is a combination of confronting China, cooperating with China, and competing with China. The CHIPS Act clearly fits within that competing bucket. And I mentioned up top, they're very happy with this bill passing. President Biden made a pledge when he was running that that he was going to focus on investing in the United States first. I think you have the CHIPS Act, you have the IRA, you have a massive infrastructure bill. All of those things, I think Biden team now feels like from a competition standpoint, they've made a lot of the needed investments. I think one of the questions we'll have going into next year, the rest of President Biden's first term is what's going to happen on the international front? Are we going to see a more proactive trade agenda because they've checked that box of domestic investment? You know, we have IPEF, we have a a bunch of different initiatives. And so those items also are going to really impact or have more of an influence, I'd say, than the CHIPS Act on the bilateral relationship maybe think about the international nature of this supply chain and knowledge base, which Paul had touched on. How is the administration, Rory, approaching this as far as sort of multilateral agreements and trying to contain China's access to these various machines and chips? One of the main things we always raising with the administration is on big efforts like this, they'll be so much more effective if you work in a multilateral fashion. You're not really achieving your national security objectives if you're removing the United States from the equation and they're just being backfilled by European, Japanese, or other competitors. The semiconductor supply chain is a little more complex, so you can't just easily backfill. But Paul, you may have heard the same rumor that there's potentially another country announcing something similar shortly after the United States. The United States has trying to rebuild some of the alliances that suffered recently and with the Europeans and the TTTC, with IPEF, with the Quad, with the CHIP4 alliance, there's all these different pieces that are coming together. I don't know the extent that tomorrow's export control announcement has been coordinated with our allies. I suspect that they're pretty well informed of what's coming. It's inevitable that this thing is going to have major impacts on the global supply chain. Can I just jump in quickly there? I agree with everything Roy said. I think the challenge here is there's two pieces to this. There's sort of the industrial policy piece, which requires some coordination already, of course, because of the CHIPS Act. We're talking about companies in South Korea and Taiwan and Japan participating in that. So already there's a multilateral or you know plurilateral element to the industrial policy piece. Export control piece is a little more complicated because most of the countries we're talking about don't have a, exactly the same type of export control system yeah. that the U.S. has. So that's why things okay. like this Wassenauer agreement are important because that's a multilateral uh, organization that is involved in dual use technologies and controls on those. The problem is that was set up for WMD, basically for nuclear and and biological weapons programs. And here we're talking about semiconductors, right? It was a little bit far afield. And so there have been calls, for example, for a new export control regime that would look at some of these more dual-use technologies that can potentially be used for military end uses, like for modeling weapons. So that's part of some of the discussions between the allies. But in the meantime, companies like Japan, in particular, the Netherlands, which are critical, of course, because ASML, are definitely in discussions with the U.S. government about types of controls, particularly on semiconductor manufacturing equipment, because they're companies are major players in this. I think there's a little bit of pushback. (laughs) Um, It's not necessarily a wild agreement on all this because, for example, the U.S. would like to control the previous generation of lithography equipment, which is widely used globally and has not been controlled before as some of the more advanced systems. And so ASML, for example, sells a lot of that equipment to China, and they are not eager to lose the market. So the challenge here we haven't really focused on is these controls are designed in many cases to be narrow, but they do impact U.S. companies in a big way 
today. And U.S. companies would prefer these to be narrow and also, of course, coordinated with allies. And that's been the challenge uh, is to find that balance between protecting national security versus really disrupting the business models of those companies and undercutting their R&D budgets, for example. I have a question here from the audience also, Andy Zalecki. That relates, I think, a little bit to these, you know, whether China's getting these different advanced lithography machine tools. So SMIC had this announcement that has produced seven nanometer chips at scale. What's your sense of whether they can produce them at scale? And if so... How does that play into the U.S.-China rivalry in this space? Basically, that story from SMIC is a little bit misleading because what SMIC has done is simply take its existing lithography tools, the so-called deep ultraviolet lithography, or DUV, and they've extended that down to some of the smaller nodes. But it's really not true 7 nanometers in the sense of some of the other companies like TSMC, which have also actually done that with their equipment, but are now well beyond that. And and to get below 7 and really full 7 nanometers, they're using the most advanced lithography equipment, which SMIC cannot obtain. And it's really hard to do that. So I'm a little skeptical, for example, of the yields that SMIC is getting. I think the only company they announced that they were doing this for was a small Bitcoin mining company. And so I'm really skeptical because it's really, really tough to get commercial yields. TSMC was able to do it with their existing equipment, but then they pretty quickly moved to EUV. The problem is that that announcement, though, looks bad, right? Because the U.S. does not have currently domestically companies that are manufacturing at that level. And so part of the reaction, I think, that Biden administration felt like it had to react with new controls on these tools is in part in reaction to that. Yes, SMIC is capable of doing that. But I think we don't want to overstate that ability because it doesn't mean, for example, that SMIC can make 250 million high-end chips for Huawei. (laughs) It's probably a limited capability. And over time, they could improve that. But I think we'd be careful not to overstate what that means. It does play into this broader equation and to the way the U.S. looks at China and export controls on semiconductor manufacturing equipment, though, certainly. When you were talking about the process that companies are probably going to have to go through to actually get this money, it made me think about all these scandals recently, some of which you mentioned in the China chips industrial policy, that sort of big fund that has had all kinds of corruption issues, and then all these other semiconductor companies that I think have gotten money but actually either been partial shams or not produced anything. Could you say a little bit about China's industrial policy on chips vis-a-vis some of those cases, but then also, are they playing in other sections of the industry? Are they trying to do the same thing the U.S. is? Can you just give a little flavor on the China side of this? China has long subsidized the semiconductor industry. It's not new. But the fund, for example, that was set up 2014, the National IC Fund, has had very mixed success. So they've been throwing a lot of money at the sector, tens of billions of dollars. And in some cases, it's produced very competitive companies like YMTC, Yangtze Memory Technology Corporation, for example, is producing memory, 3D NAND memory, that Apple has been trialing for some of its iPhones and iPads. So that's an example of a success. But the fund focused highly on manufacturing and didn't focus on some of these other areas, for example, like semiconductor manufacturing equipment. So the recent corruption scandal, which is really somewhat unprecedented, which has targeted all the senior leaders of this fund, and including some lower level of officials who were deciding on these investments is interesting. And I think it reflects concern in Beijing that despite 
eight years at it with this fund, it hasn't produced sufficient results, particularly in the face of increasing U.S. controls on this industry. There's a sense in Beijing, hey, we got to go faster here. we got to make more progress here. And so I think that accounts for this. The problem is this has thrown the industry in China into a little bit of a tizzy. How do they react to this? What's the model going forward? It's still not clear because this was a model that was fairly well established. But if you're going to arrest all the leaders there, including some of the more junior people who were arguably making investment decisions based on the leaders were saying, that throws a scare into the industry. Who's going to take those jobs again if they risk getting arrested? So I think the industry in China is a little bit of of turmoil now. And there's been restructuring. Some of the big national champions like Tsinghua Unigroup has been restructured. One of its senior leaders was also part of this arrest and the corruption scandal. So it's tricky. So the problem is in China, the market is very driven by market forces here. And so government intervention and government guidance is not really very effective except in some limited areas because this is a global and market-driven industry. And so the problem China has is doubling down on more government investment and control and guidance may not be that effective in solving some of those underlying problems that I mentioned earlier around personnel and really mid-level management, really knowing how to manage and commercially operate a manufacturing facility, for example. It's not easy and it requires very smart people. So I think China is really going through now some turmoil there to figure out what's the next model for developing its semiconductor industry in the face of this increased U.S. control over the technology inputs. The next topic, which we've all already touched on that I'd like to discuss a little bit, is Taiwan's role in this equation, so to speak. Paul, you start off by saying that given that 90% of these advanced chips are being produced by TSMC, that is a big risk for the U.S. as an example. I'm curious, both of your thoughts on how U.S.-Taiwan relations play into this TSMC, and then obviously China-Taiwan relations as well. I don't mind if we start with you, Rory, if you had any general thoughts, and then I'll, we'll go to Paul. Paul, I'll defer to you on the market dynamics here and how important Taiwan is to the supply chain, because that is a critical piece to it. I think from a bigger picture perspective, obviously Taiwan has been front and center. Speaker Pelosi's trip in August really got a reaction. There have been a number of other congressional delegations, a few governors that have gone over. As I mentioned before, there's a Taiwan Policy Act that's already passed a Senate committee, a new version has been introduced in the House. We're waiting to see how that plays out. So from a Taiwan-specific angle, there's a lot going on. And I think it's important to remember we have political processes here in the United States, in China, that are coming up in the near term. So tensions are very high. And I think when you start looking at the more narrow picture, I think Paul can comment on with the the supply chains and the importance of Taiwan in those, it gets more complicated. First of all, I think it's important to understand how we got here, right? So quickly, we have, again, as we've noted, TSMC dominating advanced chip manufacturing level. Also, in terms of overall foundry capacity, foundry just really means TSMC is manufacturing designs from other companies. Taiwan and TSMC have around over 50% of that foundry capacity. So over the last 10 years, it snuck up on us a little bit. Suddenly, Taiwan is this really, really important and pivotal part of the global supply chain. Now, the complicating piece is that these restrictions that the U.S. government is putting in place are forcing 
TSMC and Taiwan to choose whether to become part of a blue supply chain, the U.S. and allies, or a red supply chain, which is China. Because before restrictions were put in place, China was one of the biggest and growing markets for TSMC services, for example. Many Chinese companies, and still now, even today, Huawei was a big player, but many Chinese companies use TSMC to manufacture their semiconductors. And so the U.S. is driving a wedge, if you will, between TSMC and China. And I think this is what I've called an unknown red line, because if you're sitting in Beijing, for example, you have a leading company in a province you consider part of China that is building a facility in the U.S. to put its most advanced technology into. It has facilities in China, for example, in Nanjing and Shanghai, which are limited in terms of the technology that can be put there. And then you have the U.S. also cutting off leading Chinese companies like Huawei from manufacturing semiconductors in, again, a province you consider part of China. So from Beijing's optic, Taiwan and semiconductors now are absolutely, I would argue, part of their calculus in terms of unification with Taiwan. Now, if you step back, bigger geopolitical issue here is, okay, what happens if there's a, even a peaceful reunification of Taiwan? What happens to those facilities in Taiwan? Those facilities are connected globally on a real-time basis in terms of those inputs on the upstream side and shipping out finished semiconductors for packaging, etc. So Mark Liu, one of the CEO of TSMC, said basically, TSMC would be inoperable if there was any kind of a cutoff of Taiwan from the outside world, whether it was an air blockade or sea blockade. Most of the stuff goes by air. So suddenly TSMC and Taiwan are in the midst of this very tough geopolitical climate here. And you have people now speculating, for example, on that Taiwan should threaten to destroy TSMC facilities if China invades. And this was not being discussed 10 years ago or five years ago, even two years ago. Nobody was discussing those kinds of contingencies. I'll just give you one final anecdote. I just heard that there was an academic who was visiting China, for example, and part of the speech that this person gave included questions like, hey, who are the top 100 people at TSMC we should save in the event of a Chinese invasion? And the Taiwan wow. audience there was appalled at this, right? The idea yeah. that we're thinking about those kinds of things. Wow. And then the idea that U.S. officials are telling Taiwan you should think about contingency plans for destroying those fabs in the event of a Chinese invasion. So it's really amazing to me how quickly we've come from in the last two years to discussion around Taiwan's position in the industry and then in this complicated geopolitical tangle between the U.S., China, and Taiwan. I've argued, for example, that there needs to be a rethink of that whole relationship because the documents, for example, on which the relationship is built are really out of date. They come from the 1970s and 80s, the Taiwan Relations Act, the three communiques, and the Six Assurances, those were done in the more simple times when China didn't have a military, when Taiwan wasn't the linchpin of the global semiconductor supply chain, and when the democracy movement in Taiwan was not as strong. Right. So now I would argue for all those reasons, and particularly because of the semiconductor industry, you need to rethink how this is being approached. But of course, finally, U.S.-China relations are so bad and there's yeah. no trust and nobody wants to talk about these things. I've called for a fourth communique, for example, that really sets the relationship and potentially things like demilitarizing Taiwan because I think the problem is the, the stakes here are suddenly much higher than, for example, in Russia, Ukraine, which some people right. compare the situation. It's really a tricky situation going forward. And I think the semiconductor piece of it is underappreciated. I have a simple question, follow up, the factual thing. TSMC is going to build a plant in the U.S. Is that of this 90 percent, is that 1 percent, 5 percent, 
10%. How possible would it be to actually be building TSMC factories in the U.S.? Right now, if you look at TSMC facility in Arizona, they're talking about roughly 20,000 wafer starts per month okay. by 2024. Now that'll probably go up. They have the capacity there to build what's called a gigafactory, which would be roughly four or five times that number of wafer starts per month. But right now in Taiwan, TSMC has about a million wafer starts per month. Wow. So the scale of the facility being built in the U.S. is very small. And the Taiwan industry leaders and political leaders continue to say that Taiwan will be the epicenter of advanced manufacturing for TSMC for the foreseeable future. So while the CHIPS Act will fund not just TSMC, of course, but Samsung will build an advanced fab likely, Intel will build fabs in Ohio, which will eventually catch up to the industry leaders again at the most cutting edge. So over time, this will definitely put a dent. Maybe we'll get from 92, 85 or 80 percent, right? But And it's hard to say how the industry develops and there's a lot of factors there. But it's not as significant in that dominance, but it is significant in the sense that it gives the U.S. government and national security production related priorities a leg up over the next decade. But this is really going to take a decade to make a significant impact on those numbers because TSMC is just so dominant in Taiwan and they're so good. Another topic that we've brought up but haven't really gone into detail is export controls. This is a bigger issue, Rory, that has been floated beyond just semiconductors. Can you provide some little context for us around the export control idea and what people are talking about in DC these days? So there's a lot of ideas, and Paul kind of alluded to this up top, that we have all of these programs to prevent investment, technology, and ideas from going and impacting our national security. There may be gap in our current statutory authority. And so there's a lot of ideas out there about how to plug those gaps. Next Congress, assuming Republicans take control of the House, Mike McCall, who is in line to become the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, has been quite clear that one of his priorities next Congress would be to pass an export control bill. He's already announced that he would right away do a 90-day review oversight of BIS, of Commerce, to see how the export control regime is going and then that he wants to legislate on this. So Paul probably has a better idea of where those gaps are, but this is a tool that in the back burner for a while in Washington and is now very much in the front burner. Paul, you have all this institutional knowledge that you've built up. I worry that things are going to change so much in the next few years they are going to have to do a lot of learning. But there's clearly a focus. There's going to be a lot more action in this space. Yes, the export control regime was the sleepy area because it was really focused on these military and uses and nuclear right. and biological weapons, et cetera. And then with the naming of ZTE to the entity list in 2016 and then Huawei in 2019, that became game changer in terms of how people looked at export controls. And so since then, of course, there has been this attempt to rework the export control regime, adding things like this extraterritorial provision called the foreign direct product rule and retooling this tool to, for this new game we're in. Because the export control system, as my good friend Kevin Wolf, the former BIS official says, was not designed for great power competition or for maintaining U.S. tech dominance or for human rights issues, these other things, which is being used for. And so that's why he and others are calling for that fifth control regime, if you will, which would be in addition to these other regimes designed to target specific kinds of military and uses. He's called for discussions on that. And that will probably happen in the next six months to nine months in places like the EU, U.S. Trade and Technology Council, which is a forum that's taken up some of these issues, and in other quarters. The challenge, again, is that each country has a different export control approach. I think other countries are moving in a direction that's closer to the U.S. Japan has set up a new national economic security 
arm and doing a lot in this space. And so, yes, I think over time we're going to have a new era, if you will, in export controls. But in the meantime, we're sort of stuck with this arcane and unwieldy system which industry, of course, has struggled to understand at times. And here it's going to get even more complicated because just a, a quick example, in trying to understand what tools are used in manufacturing, there's lots of them, many, many, many tools. So which tools are going to be controlled, for example, who's getting those tools in China? Commerce Department itself is undermanned. The Bureau of Industry and Security is only a handful of people. So they've been struggling to figure out how to implement, enforce some of these issues, and then do things like licensing, which is always a, a really tricky thing, because being put on the NA list doesn't mean you can't get technology. It means you have to get a license to export that equipment. So we're all in this learning curve of understanding the rules. And this thing that's going to come out tomorrow, it may be 100 pages of new controls. So Rory and I will be pouring over that tomorrow to understand what are the implications of that for U.S. companies, for the industry, and then for China. China too, because ultimately China is going to be the one most impacted by that. But again, we're using these tools against China across the board. We're either using right. old tools, adapting them, or we're developing new tools like the outbound yeah. investment review to try to plug gaps. My view is this, the real goal is to give the U.S. government this granular control and visibility on all these technologies and who's selling them to China, who's investing in them, just so that the U.S. can dial back on those dials to try to control rate of development of China, these critical technologies. Really interesting question from David Tyfield. So we're limiting all these technologies with the assumption that they are essential for innovation. You mentioned in one of your earlier comments that if China doesn't have certain chips, there could actually be workarounds or some other technical process so that innovation can happen without those chips. And David, in his question, mentions a variety of other examples of where that's happened. Where So what's your sense about that process? And will there just be a variety of other ways to do the same similar advancements? I think it depends on what you're talking about, too. There's lots okay. of different applications here. Just for an example, these restrictions on things like GPUs and that are used for AI workloads, that's a huge thing because there aren't a lot of alternatives to those. If you're, for example, a Chinese AI company, an autonomous vehicle company or facial recognition, and you're training your algorithms in the cloud, for some applications, it's really difficult to find equivalent alternatives. For others, it may be okay, maybe good enough. You can find good enough solutions to use chips that are made at lower levels of technology. But again, you architect the system around that. You can overcome those things. So I think we're in a period now where China is really going to facing this need to adapt to these new controls and figure right. out ways to do it. But they're going to do it. There are some smart people in China, right? There's lots of engineers. Right. They're going to continue to innovate. They're going to continue to use technology. The other flip side of that, though, is also the concern of the U.S. industry, for example, is that all this cutting off of access to the China market is going to ultimately also impact U.S. ability to do innovation because those companies like uh. Qualcomm, NVIDIA, Broadcom, Intel, they're deriving a huge amount of their revenue from access to the China market. And to the extent right. that they're cut off, that's going to impact their R&D budgets and impact their ability to innovate. So the question I always have is, what's the national security gain? Sometimes it's yeah. hard to measure versus cost to your industry and to your innovation capacity. One of the things I've read about the semiconductor industry discussed how when NVIDIA had gotten this letter about the changes that they estimated as like $400 million hit on a quarterly basis. I'm sure NVIDIA is talking to their Congress people and those people are lobbying. And first, Roy, I'd like to just hear in general in the policy process, how those type of interests that Paul was just talking about weighing the money and innovation and employment versus some of these issues. And then we'll finish with Paul on this issue. It's certainly something that is being discussed, is under consideration, is well aware. I think that 
that with the export control rules coming out, with the ongoing outbound investment process, one thing that probably differentiates the Biden administration from the past administration is there is a lot of interaction with the business community, a lot of taking of comments informally, formally. People may disagree with policies, and I think there's good reason for that in some cases, but there's not as many surprises, I would say, as we saw in the previous administration. I think that's important. The Biden administration is attempting to put these strategies on a more firm legal footing and trying to work with industry to help them understand the goals here. Last week, for example, I think it's really important we didn't mention Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, really came with a really strong public statement that really was the first time a senior U.S. official that I can remember articulated a strategy around semiconductors in China. He basically said, look, for a long time, the unstated goal has been to keep China one or two generations behind the U.S. leadership. And he said, now we're no longer going to be pursuing this sliding scale. We want an absolute advantage in this sector. And so that's a huge signal to industry, which is basically saying, hey, the U.S. is going to draw much tighter lines around some of these technologies and really seek to maintain the U.S. advantage in ways that the industry better get comfortable with. And so the difference there, again, is unlike the Trump era, industry will be listened to, but only up to a point. So if the goal is really to keep disadvantage, then there will be policies and measures coming down that are going to help to enforce that. So I think that's why we're in a new era, both for China and Chinese companies and U.S. companies, which are going to have to sort of get used to this idea that government is going to be dictating both on an industrial policy level, more intervention in good ways, and then also on the restriction side. We are actually at the top of the hour, so out of time. Just want to say thanks so much, Paul Rory, Lots of really important insights and facts about this semiconductor competition, which is only going to continue. So thank you both. Thanks, Chris. Great job.